When I said the uh, North needs good gospel ministers, I don't mean that there aren't any already here. There are many good gospel ministers in the area. It's just a real desire that more and more churches are planted and gospel work goes on. Um, I often drive uh, over the top of Queensbury, and I'm sure some of you have driven that road. And the view down into Bradford always sobers me, because that's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, and comparatively few Christians at the moment... And then I'm reminded about uh, God's encouragement to Paul in Corinthians, uh, when Paul was in Corinth, when Paul was frightened. God said, I have many people in this city. Well, he did, but they weren't Christians yet. God knew who he was going to call and save in that city. So we're praying for Bradford uh, as a church. Um, Pray that God would really do some amazing things there. Now, it is a great privilege to speak this morning on uh, Ephesians. Ephesians is one of my all-time favourite books in the New Testament. Um, I'm sure it is for some of you too. Uh, I've been asked to speak at something this year on Ephesians. Um, and so uh, Ephesians is in my mind again. I haven't looked at it for a little while, so it's really in my mind. I'm trying to get my head back into this great book. It's a wonderful letter. So it's written by Paul to a church in what we know today as Turkey, that region. And he is uh, writing about God's big plan. And for me, at least, I find it very helpful in the face of Brexit, no political comments this morning, but in the face of all of that stuff, to have my, my sight readjusted so that I can think about things that are even more important than the future of our country. It's not that it's unimportant, but it's not as important as the eternal kingdom and the eternal realm, and God's plan. And Ephesians, of all the New Testament books, does that for me. Even more than Romans. I do love Romans, but it is Ephesians, these wonderful six chapters, that help my heart to go, wow, isn't God amazing? And it's one of those letters that's really beautifully um, simple in its construction. The first three chapters, all about God's plan in Christ to rescue and unite people, to fulfill his uh, covenant and uh, to rescue people from Jews and Gentiles all together in Christ and to give them a new future. And then the second half of Ephesians three, uh, 4 to 6. What does that mean? What's the implication? How do I live? You know, this is great theology. God's doing this big thing. But what impact is that going to have on me tomorrow and the next day? How do I live? So that's how Ephesians works. We're just going to look at uh, part of chapter 2. Thank you. Laura, is it, for reading it? Thank you for reading it. Uh, what a great passage. It may have seem, seem strange to stop at verse 9 and not go to verse 10. I know the ESC has here 10 in that paragraph. It does belong with that paragraph. But we're going to stop at verse 9 because what I want to do uh, this morning with you, if you'll bear with me, is remind us of what we were, what we've become, and then how God did that. So this is really... I, I hope some of this will be familiar to you. This won't be new information, but it, is, um, it stirs my heart and it makes me rejoice. And that's what I want to do for you this morning. I want to make you rejoice in what you were that's been changed into what you are. I want you to rejoice in that. So if you're a Christian this morning, this is designed to make you go, God is amazing. What has he done? Something amazing in my life. If you're not a Christian this morning, I'm, I'm really encouraging you to think you are what Paul describes in these first few verses don't end there because what you can become in Christ is so wonderful so that's the plan now this 
This passage comes on the back of uh, chapter 1, which is all about God's great plan in Christ. And then his prayer at the end of chapter 1, which is that we would begin to comprehend this, that we would understand just how great God's love is and his, in his plan and his power is. Now, when you're thinking about power, I wonder what you think of. I'll tell you what I think of. Uh, being an ex-Dan Airboy, I think of standing next to jet engines. I tell you, a jet engine running at full speed, when you stood next to it and tuning it, there is nothing on this earth like that. It goes through your body in the most extraordinary ways. You are shaking. Not from fear. Well, maybe you should be shaking from fear. But <laughs> I remember standing next to, um, well, I did this all the time, but I'd stand next to a 727 up on a stand and you'd be tuning the engine and there'd be somebody up the front and you'd be on the headset and they were saying, we just need a few more clicks on the uh, fuel control unit and they're running at full speed and you're so close to that engine. Now that to me, that's a personal experience of power. You might think of something like that, something similar that you've been next to. Uh, or in close proximity that's very powerful. Or you might think bigger than that. You might think the sun, which is essentially a huge nuclear reaction that's ongoing. Pretty impressive, really. I think God's quite clever, don't you? I mean, this amazing nuclear um, fusion that's going on in the sun again and again and again, generating billions and billions of joules of energy, giving us warmth and light. You might think that. Or, if you were going to talk about God's power, I wonder what you would think about if you said God's power. You think about the sun, God created the sun, think about creation, God speaks, and a universe is formed just by words, let there be light, and it's made. Or, you might think of some of those great uh, Old Testament accounts. There are some good ones, aren't there? Really gripping accounts in the Old Testament. The parting of the Red Sea. I don't know if any of you have seen Prince of Egypt, the movie, the animated movie. I like it. It's a good movie. Um, little bit of license. You've got Moses with his stick. He sends it into the ground and then whoosh, this wall of water on either side. But it wasn't quite like that in Exodus. But maybe you think of that kind of thing, these spectacular things that God does. What does Paul think about when he thinks about God's power? Well, this is really interesting. What Paul thinks about is the power that God exercises every day to bring people alive. So how do you know that God is powerful today? Well, we can point people to the sun. God made that and sustains this universe. You can point to his great acts of intervention in time and history. That's, that's fine to do that. But what Paul thinks about here, which thrills his heart, is that God is raising the dead today. God raises dead people today. Many of you here this morning are an evidence of that. You were dead and God raised you. And that demonstrates his great power still at work today. So, let's start with Paul's analysis then, God's analysis of what we were. Verses 1, 2, and 3. Let me read that to you again. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It is, I think, uh, one of the most devastating analysis, analyses of humanity that you'll read anywhere in any literature. It's absolutely devastating, those three verses. It is Paul not pulling his punches in any way. I don't know what kind of personality you're like. Um, I've come to... Uh, Chris and I were talking about this the other day. I've come to love the Yorkshire bluntness. 
Uh, it was one of the things I really was looking forward to. North East is very blunt too. And I like that. Suffolk people are very gen- gentle, <coughs> generally, and they don't generally say what's on their mind. But uh, I wonder if you would be as blunt as Paul here if somebody asked you, what do you think of me? Because Paul's analysis really is right in your face. It's proper, proper blunt. He says four things that characterise our lives before God does this powerful work to bring life. Number one, we're dead. Paul says, dead in our trespasses and sins. And he means that our rebellion against God, our constant failure to live up to his standard, and our obsession, let's be frank about this, our obsession with going our own way, hasn't just disadvantaged us and made things difficult for us, it is actually an evidence that we are spiritually dead. It's not what makes us dead. The fact that we disobey is an evidence that we are spiritually dead. There's no spiritual life in us. Pre-conversion, not even a spark. The Bible is really clear that being religious and having spiritual life are two different things. And this is something that people get very confused about today. I meet lots of people who think that they are spiritual because they're religious. And think that they have spiritual life because they have interest in spiritual things. That is not the same thing at all. We talk a lot in our day about spirituality. It's interesting that in the workplace now and in schools, you have pastoral counsellors who are meant to encourage people in spiritual things. So there's a renewed interest in spirituality today. It's 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 wrong to say that people are not interested in spiritual things. They are. There's There's more... Um, openness to talking about spiritual things, I think, in many ways than there ever has been. But that is not the same as spiritual life. It's not what the Bible means by spiritual life. What we often do is confuse religion, philosophy and spirituality with the life that God gives. It's entirely possible to be very religious, very interested in spiritual matters and be dead spiritually, completely dead. Spiritual life, as we'll see in a moment, is a gift from God. Those who do not have it are actually dead in their sins. Now, I am well aware that that is very blunt and direct and fairly unpalatable for most people. I'm not suggesting it as a uh, a first technique for evangelism, go and knock on some doors around the the community centre here and say, hello, I've just come from Otley uh, Church to tell you that you're dead. I'm so sorry, but you are spiritually dead. It might not be the best approach to take, but it is true. If they don't have Christ, they are dead. If we don't have Christ, we're dead. So Paul won't let us get away with a view of this world that's anything but God's perspective. God looks down from heaven. He sees a world that is trespassing and sinning all the time. We dress it up. We say it's not so bad. It's just social conditioning. It's just the things that we go through. It's just a little slip up. It's not really what I am. I'm really genuinely, I'm a good guy. I'm a good girl. But God doesn't say that. God says that we're dead. And we only need to read the paper and watch the TV news or even more painfully have a little look inside. And we know that that's true. He uses two distinct words to describe the mess that we're in. Trespass means to step over the line, to go somewhere we shouldn't go and get off track. We all know how that works. You tell a child to stop doing something, what do they do? We have a good illustration here in our kitchen. I've forgotten that this happens. You know, it's been a long time since I've had little fingers in the kitchen. But uh, we say to Idolette, I say, Idolette, who's turned the cooker on? Oh, I did that. 
you mustn't t- touch the, uh, the knobs on the cooker. It's very, yes, very dangerous. I mustn't touch them. And immediately she goes over and she touches them and turns them off. Don't touch that. Immediately go and do it. Now, that's childlike, and we recognise that. It's sort of slightly amusing, but it is us, isn't it? God says don't do something. Immediately our interest is piqued, and we want that very thing that we're not to have. And then we have the word sin, which means here to miss the target, to not come up to the standard, to fail. So in Paul's language, we, have, we are rebels who cross over the line and failures who come short of the pass mark, morally speaking. That's where we are. That's why we're dead. Second thing he says is that we're under Satan's control. Verse 2, Paul talks about the prince of the power of the air. It's a vivid description of Satan, uh, the devil, the angel who thought he could take God's place and is thrown out of heaven. The Bible is very clear that he is real, that he exercises a limited authority on this earth, that he is powerful, that he does influence people, and he is evil, pure evil. We want to avoid two traps when we're thinking about Satan, the prince of the power of the air. We want to avoid the trap of just seeing him as a joke. That's often how he's portrayed, isn't he? That's been quite a successful ploy of his to get everybody to laugh at him. You know, this sort of impish red figure with the horns and the little trident. Sort of silliness. We want to avoid that kind of silliness. But we also want to avoid the other extreme, which is to see him round every corner, in every room, that we need deliverance from, and we need to be casting him out of every person that we ever come across who ever says anything that is slightly disagreeable to what we believe. It's not how it works. In the middle of those two extremes is the biblical position that he is powerful, that he is active, that he does mislead people, and he's blinding millions of people today, which incidentally is a good reason why you shouldn't go around um, laughing at people who are not Christians and saying how stupid they are, because Satan has blinded them. You wouldn't laugh at a blind person, would you, if you were somebody who was physically blind? So it's not, a, it's not a joking matter. For somebody to be misled, Richard Dawkins, one of my favourites, you know, very, very angry, isn't he? Very, very against Christianity. What a terrible sadness. His eyes and brilliant mind that God has given him, blinded to the reality of what God has made. That's a great sadness. So, under Satan's control, uh, Paul says, thirdly, driven by lust. Now, when you read that, so this is uh, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. NIV goes for lust there. When you, when you read that phrase, immediately, I guess, for many of us, you'll think of a society that has gone mad in sexual lust, sexual passions. And probably we do need to hear that. Um, we firstly need to hear that uh, sex is a good thing. God invented it. It's not a bad thing. It's not dirty. God invented it. Gave a context for it. Marriage It's not to be exercised outside of marriage because the, the, so the boundary fence for it is this wonderful place of marriage. That's what it is. God designed it. He thinks it's a good thing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given it to us. Um, but passions of the flesh here doesn't just mean that. The phrase that Paul uses there can mean more than just sexual desires. It can mean those passions that get hold of us and drive us to all sorts of things. So you think of addiction, you know, it can be alcohol or drugs, it can be power, that's a powerful passion that is. The passion for power. What people think about us, our, our, um, our status, how people respect us or don't respect us, 
that can be a huge driver for us, a real passion. I want people to like me. And so I pursue that with all my energies. Money, possessions, it can be all sorts of things. So that's where, and interestingly Paul says where we were. Now he's writing to Gentiles, he's a Jew, and he includes himself in this. This is where we were. Now Paul was a very moral man in certain ways, but he had passions that drove him too as a Jew. And we know some of those because he was destroying the church. His passion to promote Judaism over Christianity drove him to approve of the death of Stephen and others. So he was driven by passions pre-conversion, just like the Gentiles who were in a context in Ephesus of temple prostitution and all sorts of stuff going on. Very much like 21st century England in some ways. You know, not that different. That's quite encouraging, isn't it? That's where the gospel was breaking in. That's the society they were in. Not different to ours. In, in many ways, not different to ours. But Paul says that was us. That was me, as a Jew, a moral Jew, driven by my passions. And it's what you were. That's where you were, under the control of that. And then fourthly, consequently, under God's wrath. Um, I have, uh, over many years, uh, had the pattern of reading through the Bible once a year. I haven't done it for a couple of years now, but... Um, for, for lots of times I've read through the Bible once a year, which is a great discipline to do. I would encourage it. It's a good thing to do. Um, but I'll tell you one thing that it does, one effect it does, is it reminds you for the first seven or eight months that God hates sin. Read through the Old Testament and you will realise without a shadow of doubt that God hates sin. Do this and you'll die. Do this and you'll die. Do this and you'll die. Oh, and do this and you'll die. And then we see it being worked out again and again. And it is sobering and heartbreaking. God hates sin with a perfect and absolute hatred. And while there's a very special sense, real sense, in which God loves the world, even though it's in rebellion against him, that is true, it is also true to say that he is blisteringly angry with our rebellion. Not just slightly put out, not just slightly upset, but furious with the rebellion of humanity. What a terrifying picture of what we were. It's really sobering, really necessary that we hear it. Dead, under Satan's control, driven by our passions, facing God's wrath. But, and isn't that a great but, 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 says Paul. So that's what you were, now onto our second point, what you are. But, because of his great love for us. So this is verse 4, 5 and 6. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad of that word, but? It's, it's glorious. Other people have said it a you know, long time before I ever noticed it. It just makes this chapter very different. <laughs> Imagine if Paul had ended chapter three just there, uh, chapter two just there. This is what you're. This is the mess you're in. Right? Let's sing our hymn and let's go home. How depressing would that be? But God, it's the most wonderful answer to such a bleak and depressing picture. We have a world sinning and rebelling against God and under His wrath. But He does something. What does He do? Well, 
It is interesting to me that Paul follows the pattern of Jesus as he describes our our great experience. In the previous chapter, chapter 1, Paul speaks about the resurrection and then the ascension of the Lord Jesus and uses exactly the same words as he does in chapter 2. So chapter 1, this is what he says, he's talking about God exerting his power which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. So God's power is exercised in raising Jesus from the dead. Glorious day, 2,000 years ago, Jesus defeats sin and death and is resurrected from the grave in glory. And then in chapter 2 he uses the same language to talk about us being resurrected and raised and seated in the heavenly realms. Now this needs a little bit of explaining. Firstly, the resurrection that Paul is speaking about here is the resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life. Becoming a Christian is firstly about God's work to breathe life into our souls. The great demonstration of God's power, as I started with today, which is a massive encouragement to us, is that he raises people to new life in Christ. He saves people. How do I know that God is powerful? I'll tell you how I know God is powerful. Because 40 years ago, he woke me up to the death that I was in. And he showed me that I needed Christ. Even though I'd grown up in church and I knew all the stuff, I'd never really, for myself, asked Christ to forgive me and given myself to him. There was no life there. There was knowledge, but no life. But he woke me up and breathed life in, and I was saved. And then, both in Hartlepool and in uh, Fressingfield, I saw people who I thought were a million miles away, nowhere near the gospel, nowhere near accepting the gospel. Kids that I met on car park duty, what a waste of time I thought that was at Hartlepool, to be going out on car park duty. Most of our men were in their 80s, so I couldn't all very well send them out because I thought they might have a heart attack. So during the prayer meeting, while some of them were speaking, I would go out and do car park duty. I was pretty fed up with doing that. But that's where God introduced me to some of the lads who were wandering around and some of those now in church leadership back in Hartlepool. And do you know what that does? It makes me think God is amazing. How, would, how could he get hold of somebody that had no family background, no knowledge of the gospel, no understanding of that, and then just get hold of them and breathe life in what he does? Or well, I think about one guy in Fressingfield uh, who I love to talk about, and he doesn't mind me because I've talked about this because I've asked him lots of times. Essentially, was so drunk every time that I would go around to see him that it, most of the conversations were a complete waste of time. You know, I'd be phoned up by his wife and say, so-and-so's in real trouble again, can you come around and have a chat with him? I mean, he was only, how old was he? In his 30s, was he? Early 30s? And I'd go around and go and see him, and he'd be absolutely out of his tree. And I'd be thinking to myself, this is just a waste of time, sitting here talking to him. And then he rings me up and says, I'd like to come to Christianity Explored. Second weekend, he's converted. I just, and I was blown away. I was just completely blown away, because I thought, what, how did that even happen? I'll tell you how it happened, because God is powerful, and he brings life where there's death. And he still does it today. And you could give illustrations of that. You could talk about your own heart. You've been changed from death to life. People that you know, perhaps, been changed from death to life. God is amazing. And we mustn't underestimate that, because everything is against that. The world is pumping you full of information, saying that's all a load of old nonsense. Don't believe the gospel. It's all old hat. It's all out of date. Uh, you, the devil is trying his very best to blind you to that and stop you thinking about it. And your own heart, your flesh, is pulling you in other directions. And yet God, despite all of those, that unholy trinity of enemies, works life and brings new life to you. It's great, isn't it? Just great. But Paul's not just talking about that. He's also talking about 
the last day when we will be physically raised too. You see, we not only have a spiritual resurrection when we're converted, but we'll also have a physical resurrection when God actually raises and transforms our dead bodies into new glorious incorruptible bodies. That's quite a prospect, isn't it? But it gets even better. Everyone who is a Christian will not only be physically raised, but one day will also be seated with the Lord Jesus in a position of great honour for the rest of eternity. Now that just, uh, that's extraordinary, isn't it? I'm going to be sat with the Lord Jesus one day. How amazing is that? The, the person that I love more than anybody else in the world, I'll be there with him, I'll be sat with him. But I've just done something incorrect there, because I've spoken about all of that in the, part, in the future tense, when that's not how Paul describes it. It's not the language that Paul uses here. He uses present tense all the way through. So verse 6. Um, Even when we did in our trespass, uh, trans, trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised, past tense. Raised us up with him and seated, past tense, us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why does he use past tense here? Now, there's two great reasons for this. and these, This is two sermons. We haven't got time for this, but these, I'll just lay it out for you really quickly. Number one, it's because it's so certain that it will happen, Paul can use the past tense. It's absolutely certain. If Christ has um, saved you, it is certain that you will be raised again on the last day and you will be seated with Christ. So we can speak in the past tense. First reason. Second reason is that now, by faith, we have been united to Christ... <coughs> We've been joined to Christ, and so his resurrection is my resurrection, and his seating in heaven is my seating in heaven. And that's now. I've got that now because I'm connected to Christ by faith. Isn't that exciting? That's God's work to raise us and seat us with his son today. You know, we get the full fulfilment of that on the future day, but that's, that's what I have now. I'm raised because Jesus is raised because I'm so connected to him it's as if my resurrection has happened in him I've been raised in him and I am seated as he is seated very exciting idea real stunning stuff all the way through Ephesians that uh, worth a read through read through Ephesians when you get a moment maybe this afternoon um, when you're sat on your comfortable sofa and your log fire's burning just go through Ephesians and look at all those times when Paul says in Christ in Christ all the blessings we have because we're in Christ, not just through Christ, it's not just that he's passed on something to us, but I have been joined to him by faith, and so all the things that he enjoys are mine, because I'm in him. Very exciting. Lastly, thirdly, he tells us how or why this happened. This is verses 7, 8, and 9. Uh, you see, this is in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are... Uh, no, we're not into ten. So, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Now, you may miss it, but there's, um, it's difficult to translate this because uh, you sort of want to use different words in English, but it is the same word three times in there. Um, verse 7... He wants to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Verse 8, in case we've missed it, by grace you have been saved. And then, the end of verse 8, this is where it's slightly obscured, this is not your own doing, it is the grace of God, it is the gift of God. So it's the same again. Uh, Charis, the Greek word, means gift, grace. We often think of grace in terms of style and poise. I have no grace in that way. I can't dance, I can dad dance, but I have no grace in dancing. Um, many men are the same and 
So we tend to think of grace as some sort of, you know, wonderful, I don't know. But it's not how the word grace works in the New Testament. Grace in the New Testament means giving something you don't deserve. It is a gift. It's a gift. So Paul is saying here, three times over, it's God's grace, it's God's gift. And it's by grace you've been saved, gift. And this is not from yourself, it is the gift. So three times, in case we're a bit dumb, uh, a bit slow. Grace, 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 grace. It's all about God's grace. And we take hold of that grace by faith. That is to say, I don't earn this gift, otherwise it wouldn't be a gift. I'm not working for it. I'm not being saved because I've done something to make myself worthy. I'm saved by faith, that is trust. I'm trusting in his grace, in his gift, in his salvation that is given as a gift. I don't rescue myself. I don't contribute to it in any way. Faith is trusting him, receiving the gift. Uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who is a particular favourite of mine, uh, says, you don't thank your hand when you have your dinner. So when you get home and you have your roast beef, you don't say to your hand, oh, thank you for giving me that roast beef. Well, that would be weird. That would be really weird, wouldn't it? Uh, and faith is like that. Faith is the grabbing hold of the gift. So we would actually thank the giver. In this case, it would be Claire for our lamb joint. Mm, I can't wait. Uh, our lamb joint later. I'll thank Claire. I won't thank my hand. My hand is what I'll put the lamb into my mouth with, but it's Claire that gives me the gift of the dinner. You see the point? So faith in itself is nothing apart from the grabbing hold of the gift. And the giver of the gift is the person that's the most important thing. It's for the praise of his grace. Beginning of Ephesians. So I can't boast about faith, but I can boast about God's grace. I can talk about how amazing God is to rescue people like us, people who don't deserve it, people who by our sinfulness show his amazing grace that he would rescue people like us. John Newton, you'll have heard of him, famous... um, Christian, uh, wrote Amazing Grace, says this, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly, he says as an old man, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. That's just great. It's a great little quote, famous quote, but a wonderful thing to keep in your head. Uh, do you know, I, I really, that really resonates with me. I think about myself, I think, you know, Paul is not a good fella. He's really not a good fella. But Jesus is amazing. Jesus is absolutely amazing. And that's boasting in grace. To end, one of the things that Ephesians 2 does is talk in plurals. And I've done this a lot of this in, in personal languages about what God has done for me. But it is the us language here. God's powerful demonstration is in saving a group of people. This is why church is so important. This is not about um, just one or two individuals scattered around. The reason that we meet together in churches and congregations like this is that we are together those of us who are saved, a demonstration of God's power. Because he has saved us. He, by his power, has raised us and seated us with Christ. It's very important for so many reasons. There's no room for boasting or pride or feeling superior to other people in the room. If you're saved this morning, you join a company of people who are saved by grace and nobody in the room deserves that grace. That's also a wonderful truth. It doesn't mean you are beyond it because you're just the same as the rest of the people in the room. We were all dead. We were all lost. All objects of wrath. But now by grace we've been saved. And it means our focus is not simply on what church can do for me. This has been an increasing problem, I think, in churches. Oh, I don't go to church anymore because it doesn't do anything for me. I really hate that kind of language. That's very strong, but I really don't like it. Because it makes church just another consumer thing, doesn't it? What can the church do for me? 
That's not why we meet together. We meet together because we've been rescued by God's grace and we want to talk about that and we want to sing about it and we want to learn about it and we want to go out and tell everybody else about it. Because God is amazing because he rescues and saves and breathes in new life.